Open your Bibles up to 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians, we're actually going to start in chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 1. I read a news article that talked about a family in the UK that had an old vase in their house, or I think if you're from the UK, you say Voss, right? Anyways, and uh, for years, they had used that uh, vase as a doorstop. And their kids had played around it. They uh, had played with it sometimes. And so it was just a a piece of junk in the house. Eventually, they put it in their bungalow and their little cottage, and they rented out, and they used it there for a doorstop as well. Then a man named Charles Hansen came along, and he is uh, on a show called Bargain Hunt. And he rented the cottage, and he saw the vase told the vase, and he told the family that that vase was actually worth a million dollars. Now, we all wish we could have a find like that, right? Go through your parents' house or even your own, and you find something in the attic, and you find out it's worth a million dollars. Well, when that family discovered their vase was worth a million dollars, what did they do? They stopped using it as a doorstop. Right, they stopped letting the kids play with it, and they actually took that, they set it aside, I think eventually they put it up for sale, but between that time, they actually sanctified it. What does that mean? They set it apart, they, they consecrated it, they said, this is something special, this is something valuable, and because they saw it as valuable, they set it apart, they sanctified it, they cleaned it, and they did not let the kids play with it anymore. And the point is, is that there are things that we recognize that have value. We set them apart, and therefore, we treat them with that value. We we treat it as a sanctified object. Like that vase, the Bible speaks of us, God's children, as those who have been sanctified. We have been set apart unto the Lord. When Before we came to faith in Christ, before we came to faith in Christ, we were We were soiled vessels, we were defiled, we were defiled by our sin, we were lost, we were without hope, but God was the one who reached down by grace, he sanctified us, he set us apart unto himself, he forgave forgave us of all of our sins, He, he made us his pure and holy sanctified people. And because we have been set apart by God's grace, through the work of Jesus Christ, in the power of the Spirit, then we are to live lives that are set apart by God's grace through Christ's work in the power of the Spirit. I think about an old mangy dog that maybe is a street dog and it sleeps in the gutter, it eats garbage. I think about a man who goes and he decides he's going to adopt this dog and he sets this part a dog for him dog apart for himself. He he cleans the dog, he washes the dog, he he invites the dog into his home. He gives the dog real dog food, the good stuff, the real stuff. And the point is he has set this dog apart for himself. Now he is the owner of the dog. He loves the dog. He cares for the dog and there's something different now about this dog. And so God has God has, like that vase and like that dog, God has positionally set you apart for himself, and now he wants you to live differently. In fact, that's what you see throughout 1 Corinthians, this this pattern of purity. God positionally has 
sanctified us. God has forgiven us, and therefore we live in that grace. We live a life of purity. In fact, notice this in 1 Corinthians 1, 2. Because he starts this way, he continues this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, so this local church, to those sanctified, to those set apart by God. In Christ Jesus, called to be saints, called to be set apart ones. Now go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Go to our text, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12. And our text teaches us here that God has called us to the same holiness, the same purity. We're going to learn here this morning that because you are set apart unto God, you must flee sexual sin and glorify God with your body. In fact, that's what these verses are talking about. Verses 12 through 20 are calling us to recognize that we are set apart. We have been set apart unto God, and therefore we must flee sin and must glorify God with our bodies, which is God's. I think a sermon like this is probably one of the most relevant sermons for our time. We live in a sexualized culture, but what's actually interesting is the church of Corinth did as well. I mean, all over the city of Corinth were these temples where men and women would go and worship, and their idol worship was involved drunken, gluttonous feast and immoral, sexually immoral activity. In fact, at the very top of this city of Corinth was the temple of Aphrodite, and there was over 2,000 priestesses that would come and descend upon the city, and they would worship their gods through immorality. In fact, it was so prevalent in Corinth that to Corinthianize was to live an immoral life. And it was a part of every part of their society. Their, their idols, their pictures on their walls were explicit. Their sculptures were without clothes and presented the ideal perfect human body. Their mythologies and stories were about gods coming down with man and, 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 and rampant immorality in their stories. It was in the school. It was at work. It was in the neighbor's home. It was throughout the city. It was the punchline for their comedy and outdoor shows. It was the way of life in Corinth. And isn't it interesting how what goes around comes around? And you can describe our society and our culture in much of the same way, right? There is a sexual agenda within our public school, school curriculum. Go to the library, read the, the, the books our kids are reading. There's some of our kids are reading books in the library and I'm going, what's in that book? Like this was an innocent kid's book and they slipped something in there and there's an agenda. There's an agenda in the, the majority of advertising. I mean, it's like you can't watch commercials if, if you even know what those are anymore. But you can't watch those kind of things because it's like the things that come up, it's just, it's, it's, it's right in front of your face. And in fact, almost every TV show and movie for kids is, has this agenda in it, at least modern ones. Think about how our society idolizes the body. And like those Corinthian men and women, Americans worship their God through immorality. Now, what's the God for America? What is our God in America? What is it? It's self. 
It's me. I am my own God. And so how do people worship self? They worship it by saying, it's my body. I can do what I want. All the perversion of adultery, of pornography, of sensual lust, of LBGTQI+. I got that all right, by the way. It's all the worship of self. It's all a rejection of God. It's all saying, I want to worship self, and they worship it through immorality. And in like any other religion, there's symbols. Like we have symbols. There's religion. We have a cross. Like they have symbols. They have a flag. Like any other religion, there's, there's holidays. And they have an entire month, right, set aside for that. Like other religions, they proselytize, they indoctrinate, they condemn sinners who don't agree with them, they cancel them. But we're not surprised by this because we shouldn't be because this is how the world lives. This is when a person follows the desires of their own heart, when they worship self, this will be the path they will take. They will do what's right in their own eyes. This will be the path they will go down. And the truth truth is we're not shocked by this because this is how we once lived. We once worship self. We once followed our own desires. Maybe we didn't live it out in some of the ways that we're seeing in our society right now, but we live that way. But God has called us out of that. God plucked us out of that by his grace, and he's called for us now to live for him. God's word says that my body is not my own. This is not my body. This is God's body. It's been bought with a price, and therefore I'm to glorify God with my body. And so because you are set apart unto God as a child of God, you must flee sexual sin and glorify God with your body. In fact, Paul wrote first and second, or sorry, first Corinthians chapter five and six to remind the church of that. In fact, look down in first Corinthians six, nine. And here are some sins. We talked about these last week. In verse nine, these are Much of these are the sins of the flesh. He says, And do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. And we talked about some of those last week. But notice verse 11. Skip verse 10 and go to verse 11. And such were some of you. So we lived that way at one time. We followed the desires of our own sinful heart, but something changed. What changed? It's called grace. Notice verse, the rest of that verse, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's through his work on the cross and by the spirit of God, it's his work to cause your soul to come to life. And so notice it's God who sanctifies, it's God who washes, it's God who justifies. We don't cleanse ourselves. The the call to purity isn't a call to to try to be a better person, to say no to all these things and maybe you can get to heaven. That's not the call. That's repent, confess you're a sinner, come to Jesus Christ and ask him for cleansing. And guess what? He will. He'll forgive. He will cleanse. And then based upon that cleansing By God's grace, we are to continue to live a pure life. This is mocked in our society. You're an oddball in our society if you live this way. Some even try to slander this by calling this the the purity culture. You probably heard that out there. And I may just kind of make a comment on that because there definitely are some people who take the teachings of God's word and they go beyond that. 
and they can take it to a legalistic, harmful extreme where they actually codify their own ideas of what they think purity is, and they demand other people follow that. And if you don't follow these lists of don'ts, then you're not a righteous person and you're excommunicated from them. I mean, so the point is they, they take that and they make that uh, an entrance to go into heaven or entrance to go into their fellowship. And the point is, is that there are some wrong applications. There is a false gospel that people preach about purity, but we can't take what people do on the extreme and then throw out this entire teaching of, from God's word. God does call us to purity, to moral purity. So this Body, this passage here calls you to concentrate, or sorry, consecrate, consecrate your body unto God. This passage here calls us to, to live a pure life in our body. Now, as we go through this text, I want you to understand how, the, how this is laid out. There's a lot that's going on here. So I'm going to try to simplify it for you. And so there's really two main commands that we find in verses 12 through 20. Not just two main commands, they're the only two commands. But look at verse 18, that's the first command. The first command is flee from sexual immorality. The next command we find in this text is in verse 20, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Those two commands joined together are where you find purity. It's fleeing from what is wrong It's glorifying God with your body. It's doing what is right. What is purity according to God? What is purity according to God? It's fleeing and it's glorifying. It's the negative and it's the positive. It's the negative of of fleeing my own selfish desires. It's the negative of, of not bowing to my own sinful lusts and worshiping at the altar of sexual immorality. And in the end, all sin, really all immorality is selfishness. It's all about me. It's all about fulfilling my own desires. And so the Lord says that it's fleeing that, but it's not just staying there. It's not just don't, right? It's not just don't, 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 don't. It's actually do. What are we to do? We are to glorify God in our body. I think that's kind of the problem that some Christians face is they focus on the don't and they have these lists and they, you know, it's, it's like, it's like anything that deals with sexuality is really bad. Like God doesn't want you to even think about that. But actually, God wants you to consider what you should do. God wants you to consider his wonderful gift. And so it's, it's yes, it's flee, but it's also go, glorify God in your body. Purity of your body, particularly in regard to your sexuality, is found when you flee and when you glorify God in your body. So the question is, how can we, as God's set-apart people, live in purity with our body? And so these two commands, what we're going to look at, we're going to do this. We're actually going to look at the second command first and then come back to the first command. So the second command is you must glorify God in your body. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 says, you were bought with a price. What's the price? That's Christ's blood. That's the redemption we find in Christ through his blood on the cross. So glorify, glorify God in your body. The word glorify means to honor, to bring glory to, to magnify. It comes from the the root Greek word doxa or glory. It's the idea that God is glorious and he deserves glory. So we must glorify him. In other words, we must live in a way that honors God. 
that brings glory to his name. First, think about the glory of God. Think about who God is, what God does. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. He is eternal. He's never had a beginning. He'll never have an ending. He is, he was, he forever will be. God is great, but God is also good. He is just, he's faithful, he's kind, he's loving, he's generous, he's patient. And all of who God is, all of his perfection, all of his wonder is the glory of God. It's his glory. And so God, because he's a glorious God, he created us, he created humans to glorify and enjoy him. Literally, you were created for that purpose, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so God gave us eyes so that we can witness his glorious creation. God gave us brains that can logically think about him and know him. God gave us a will to choose to love him. He gave us emotions to enjoy him. He gave us a mouth to praise him. Our bodies are designed to bring glory to God. And then he put a man and a woman together to glorify God by serving each other in marriage by sacrificially loving one another and being committed to one another in a covenant of love, by enjoying one another, getting married, coming together in intimacy and having children. God literally designed a man and a woman's body to glorify God in that way, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what we're designed to do, to glorify God. The problem we have in our world is that we have not glorified God. I mean, if you look at the book of Genesis and you see the very beginning, God created us to glorify him. And then you see all this perversion in the book of Genesis. What's going on? People are not glorifying God because they've taken the good gift of God and they've twisted it. They've taken the good gift of God and they've perverted it. Sin distorts our view of our bodies, of marriage, So why did Christ come to this world? He he came to rescue us. He came to redeem us. And part of that includes repurposing our, our lives, our bodies, so they can now glorify God. He came to redeem and to restore. And when God saved you, he saved your soul, but he also restored your purpose, and that is to glorify him. And so, as a Christian, what is the goal of your life, it must be to glorify God and enjoy him. And so now what are you to do with your body? Well, you're to use your body to bring glory to God. And so this is a positive command. Glorify God in your body. I mean, this is an intentional, this is an intentional act. It's, it's the command that tells you to use, or sort of to use your body as a sacred vessel to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. What does your body include? It includes the physical exterior body parts. It includes your eyes, what you look at. It includes your ears, what you listen to. It includes your mind. It includes your motions. It includes what you meditate on. So what does God want you to do as a a person who has been set apart unto the Lord with your body? What does he want you to do? He wants you to glorify him. And again, the, the message of the world is what? This is my body. I can do what I want. But the message of the Bible is this is God's body. I must glorify him. 
To glorify God in your body means that you view everything you do in your body as an act of worship. When you go to sleep, when you take a shower, when you watch that movie, when you sit down in your chair and drive in your car and scroll on your phone and take those pictures, when you do anything in your body, everything you do is an act of worship. And the question we must ask ourselves on a constant basis is, who am I worshiping right now? Am I worshiping God? Am I glorifying him in my body? Or am I worshiping the self? And so how are we to glorify God in our body? And particularly, he's talking here about our sexuality. How are you to live in purity and sexual purity with your body? Well, he's going to give that the answers to those specific questions in chapter Seven And just let me just kind of show you this to you so you can maybe look forward to this. If you look in chapter 7, in verse 3, there he's going to talk to those who are married. What does it mean to glorify God in your body if you're married? Verse 3 tells you that you are to give your body as a gift to the other person. You're to serve your spouse, your husband, your wife with your body. The truth is true. Joy is not selfish. It's not just about what I can get. When, 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 it, when it's that way, it's called lust. But true joy is actually in giving. It's in giving to the other person. That's how God designed us. And that's where true joy is. If you're not married, what does it mean to glorify God? Well, if you look in verses 8 and 9, you're going to see that. It, it means in verses 8 and 9, if you're not married, how do you glorify God in your body? Well, if you're burning with desire and you can't keep your hands off each other, then go get married, right? There, go tomorrow morning, get up and be like, and if you're living with someone tomorrow morning, get up, or maybe even today, I don't think anything's open today, but I'll, I'll marry you today. How about that? The, the point is, how do you glorify God in your body? And if you, if you have this desire and you can't, go get married. If you're saying, well, I don't want to get married, well, then how do you glorify God in your body? Verse 25 talks about this. If you're single and you don't want to get married, then flee immorality. And then and dedicate your body, your time, to focusing on serving Christ and his church by giving the gospel, by discipling people. And notice what, if you notice in chapter 7, if you read through this, what you'll notice is that sexual purity takes place within marriage. Purity is glorifying God by using your body in a way that he calls you to use it. And so if you're not married, sexual purity means saving your mind and your body for marriage and using your life right now to focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are married, sexual purity means your mind and your imaginations and your emotions and your body is dedicated to sacrificially loving that spouse. And then together as a married couple, you have children if God allows that. Raise them up to love God. If God graces upon you, serve together. That's what God has called us to do. One of the texts I shared with you a couple weeks ago is Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. Intimacy in marriage is holy. It's a blessing Parents, grandparents, teach our children that. It's a blessing. It's a gift. But outside of marriage, God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And so we are to glorify God in our body. That's the first command. Second command is you must 
That's the second command. The first command is you must flee sexual immorality. Verse 18. This is the first command we find here in this, these verses, flee sexual immorality. The Greek word behind sexual immorality is pornea, which is a general term for any type of sexual indulgence outside of marriage. So this applies to the single. This applies to the married. No matter who you are, you are to save your body for your spouse. If that person is not your spouse, then you need to get your hands, your eyes, your mind, your body off of that person. Notice the command is not just to stop being sexually immoral or just to be aware of it or try not to fall into it. A lot of people think about that way. Well, I fell into sin. But actually what he's saying here, he's saying, it's not just don't. He's saying, flee, run the other way. How many times have I sat in a premarital counseling session and I'm talking to a couple and they say, well, but we haven't gone all the way yet. But you've stepped over the line, huh? And you can see the guilt on their face. Yeah, we have. See, they didn't flee. It's not just don't do that. It's run from it. The Greek word for flee here is the same one we find in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 39. In fact, if you want to, you can turn over to Genesis 39. It's the very beginning of your Bible. That's the story of Joseph. Remember Joseph? Sold into slavery by his brothers, betrayed. Bought by Potiphar, a powerful military leader in Egypt. And and Moses, or not Moses, uh, Joseph, he faithfully served the Lord He faithfully served the Lord by serving Potiphar. So much so that Potiphar entrusted Joseph with his entire house. He could do whatever he wanted. So there you had this young, muscular, virgin Joseph. He had dedicated his body to serving the Lord by faithfully serving where God had placed him. I mean, he did not want to be a slave, okay? Don't get that wrong. But this is where God had him. And so he said, this is, this is where God has me. I'm going to be faithful to use my body to serve the Lord. But hanging around the estate was Mrs. Potiphar. And she eyed him. She lusted after him. And one day she tried to seduce him. You can see that in verse 7. The Bible says that she cast her eyes upon Joseph and she said, lie with me. I mean, you can imagine this woman, maybe she put her, 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 her shirt down a little bit. Maybe she, she batted her eyes, but she was seductive. She wanted Joseph to come and sin with her. And what did he do? How did he respond? Verse 8, he refused. And he said to his master's wife at the very end of that verse, says this, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It's a sin. I can't do that no matter what. I feel. He got away at that time, but she kept coming. Verse 10, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day after day after day, and friends, isn't that how temptation works? It's like you say no, and you're like, well, I said no last week, but it keeps coming after you. He would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Notice how subtle this is. Just lie with me. I mean, come on, Joseph. Don't you deserve it? I mean, life hasn't treated you fair anyway. Have a little bit of fun once in a while, Joseph. Just play along, Joseph. 
You don't have to go all the way, Joseph. Just lie down with me. Maybe we, just, we can just give each other a back rub, Joseph. It's not a big deal, is it, Joseph? No one will know, Joseph. No, it's a sin against God. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? But one day, she trapped him. Everyone else was out of the house. And if this was, this was a Hollywood movie, it actually would be the best part of the movie because this would be the time where he gives in and they run off together and live happily ever after, which is a lie, <laughs> as most Hollywood movies are, right? It's not how it works. Not, have, not happily ever after, that's for certain. But no, Joseph didn't do that. He was not a whoremonger. His body was a set-apart vessel unto the Lord. And so verse 12 says, she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. And what did he do? He left his garment in her hand, and he fled. He got out of the house. In fact, that word fled there in the Hebrew and in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is used four times in this passage. In verse 12, in verse 13, in verse 15, in verse 18. The emphasis in this passage is on run, flee, get away from sin. And friends, this is why in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life in heaven with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell. And, and don't get Jesus wrong there. He wasn't actually literally telling you to cut your hand off or pluck your eye out. It's hyperbole. It's saying, do whatever it takes to flee from sin. When sin is enslaving you, when sin is dominating you, then run as far, as fast as you can. And so we're to flee sexual immorality. This is difficult, isn't it? I mean, the entire world is floating down the stream of sin, and we're trying to go the opposite way. And it's hard. When you read something like this, the question that many people ask, and hopefully we ask, is why? You know, I mean, okay, God tells us to do this. Why is that important? And that's really the, the point of all the other verses surrounding those two commands is, is why? Why are we to flee immorality? Why are we to glorify God in our body? And so Paul, what he does is he goes through and says some of the reasons that they, some of the excuses that they give, and then he gives the reasons why. And so let's start back in verse number 12. I want, to, I want us to think through these reasons why we should flee immorality and then why we should glorify God in our bodies. Look at verse 12. He says, all things are lawful to me. This is actually a quote that the, that the Corinthians used to give excuses for their sin. And so they said, well, all things are lawful to me. So Paul rebuttals that and says, but not all things are helpful. They say, well, all things are lawful for me. And Paul says, but I will not be dominated by anything. So you see those quotes in your English translation. It's, it's the idea that, that he's quoting what they would say to excuse their sin. And so the argument goes something like this. We have freedom in Christ, right? Christ died for our sin, but it's all under the blood. So stop making a big deal of it. That's kind of the idea, as you see here. This is an excuse to sin. This is an excuse that people still use in the church today. 
we have, we have freedom to do this. How many Christians have been about to, to watch something, maybe to do something, and they think to themselves, it's not really that bad of a sin. Or just one time. I'm only going to do this one time. And afterwards, I could just ask Jesus to forgive me for it. He's going to cleanse it anyways, isn't he? That's what Paul's saying is wrong. Or nah, it's not a clear prohibition in the Bible. The Bible doesn't really say anything about movies. You don't find the word movie in the Bible anywhere. The Bible doesn't talk about the internet at all. And so they excuse some of their sin by saying, I have freedom in Christ. I can do what I want. It's, it's lawful for me. Paul says, no, you have freedom to do what is best, to do what is helpful. Not all things are helpful. And so the question is not what can I do? The question is what is best to do? What is best to do? What is most helpful? What is most profitable? What is most helpful for my purity and for the purity of others? Let me give you one example. I'm uh, one of the pastors of the church, and it's my role to shepherd everyone that's at our church. And that includes sometimes singles, some singles in the church. And so there's ladies in the church that are single. And the past number of weeks, I've met with a couple single ladies. Is it wrong for me to meet with a woman like that alone? Think about that. Does, does the Bible say anywhere that a pastor, an elder, that, you know, you're responsible for someone's soul? That's my job, Hebrews, right? Does it ever say anywhere that I should not meet with a woman alone? It's not in the Bible anywhere. So someone might say, well, you have Christian liberty to do that. It doesn't say that. But that's not the question. The question is not, can I? The question is what? What is most helpful? What is most helpful for my integrity? What is most helpful for my marriage? And for even that other person, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Therefore, even for myself, I don't meet with a single lady or girl by myself. I either have my wife there or someone else there because I think it's the most helpful thing. The question with sexual immorality is not what can I do, but what is best to do? I just think about just an example. Just think about like a, a 10-year-old child and is it best for a 10-year-old to have a phone that is unfiltered with the internet? I mean, and a child might say, well, all my friends are doing it, or, well, where does the Bible says we can't do that? But I guess probably the question that we need to ask as parents is, what is best? What is most helpful for that person to flee immorality and to glorify God? Someone might say, well, I have the freedom to do it. And so Paul retorted with that. He says, well, actually, you need to ask the question, will it enslave? Not is it allowed, but could this enslave me? Look at that in verse number 12. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And here the question one needs to ask is not is it allowed, but could it enslave me? Not just for myself, but even as parents and grandparents, it's something to ask is, is this going to be the most helpful for my child? Could this turn into something that actually could harm them? A Christian man, for instance, might be on social media, and maybe he's, he's scrolling through social media, and, and over and over, he's struggling with the inappropriate videos that he keeps seeing, and he's losing the battle in his mind. And so 
And, and he thinks to himself, but it's lawful. Other people do it. I mean, all things are lawful for me. I, I can do this. It's fine. I mean, I'll just try to do better next time. The Bible never says you can't have social media, does it? But the question probably he needs to ask is this. Not is it allowed, but could this or is this enslaving me? And it might be a person like that needs to get off. It might be that person like that needs to actually just have accountability and have some software on his phone or not look at it unless it's his wife or sibling or someone else is there with him. The, the point is that the question we should be asking is, could this enslave me? Could this be a problem for me? And one of the underlying problems with a lot of this is people like to think about it like this, like, like to think, what's wrong with that? You ever heard that one before? What's wrong with that? Where does the Bible say that's a sin? And that's really, frankly, a very immature question to ask. The question actually is, is this helpful for myself, for other people around me? Will this help me to flee from sin and to glorify God? Someone might say, well, what's wrong with doing that or watching that? Well, the question you must ask actually is, could this dominate me? Would this, this hinder me from fleeing and from glorifying God? Could this, could this awaken desires in, in this child's heart or even in my heart that could actually cause me to be in bondage to sin? And I want you to notice, I've, I've given some examples. I'm trying to be as general as possible. I'm trying not to lay out anything that's super specific to say, like, you know, this movie or this thing, you know, because, because part of this right here is this is about maturing in Christ. This is about you taking these questions and you, you add, kind of applying them to your life and you say, okay, how does this work in my life? And it's going to look different for one person in the church than another person in the church. And, and what, what could be best for you might not be best for somebody else. And so I, I'm trying to be very careful here because these are, these are questions of maturity. How do we grow in Christ? And so I, again, I'm, I want to emphasize, like I'm not here trying to give you a list of here's the things you should do or not do to be pure, okay? This is not like, this is the five movies that are pure on Pure Flix. And here are the five bad movies on Netflix you shouldn't watch, you know? And you could discern that yourself. And I think there probably are, they are, both of those are there. But the point is, is that this is about maturing in Christ. And as mature believers, we ask these questions because we don't want to be trapped in sin because we want to glorify God with our bodies, Another excuse they gave was in verse 13. And I, I, the, I think they, in the ESV, put the second quote in the wrong place. I think it's supposed to be after and the other. So we'll look at that in a second. But verse 13, food is meant for the stomach. So this is what they would say to each other. Stu food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. And I think the quotation should be right there. Some in Corinth said this as an excuse. It's kind of like the idea, it's like, well, God made me this way. And think of their logic. Think of their logic. God made the stomach. God gave us food. And what's food for? It's for the stomach. What's our stomach for? It's to have food. So, you know, God, this is how God made us. He made us the, stu the, the stomach for food and the, and, and the food for the stomach. So, in the same way, God has designed my mind and my desires, my body for pleasure. So if it feels good, if it's made, if I made this way, then what's wrong with it? That's kind of the, that's kind of the analogy he's given here. It's like, if, that's, if God made it, then therefore I should be able to enjoy it. 
And then kind of the idea, too, is like, well, you only get one body, too, right? So live it up while you can. I mean, God's going to destroy both your stomach and your body and the food. And so live it up while you can. This was the excuse they gave to, to sin against the Lord. This argument is used today to indulge in sin. People will say, well, if God made your body and you have these desires, then it can't be wrong. You might have heard this before. You know, it's kind of like, you know, if, if you're a boy and you like a boy, then, you know, maybe that's how God made you. Maybe you should like that boy. No, it's actually against God's word. Yes, God did design your body, but sin has distorted your desires. Your sinful desires are not from God. God has given you a gift of your body, of intimacy that's to be enjoyed in marriage, and anything outside of that is an abuse of God's gift. Others say, well, sow your wild oats while you're young. You know, explore and experiment. That's, I mean, literally, I think it's pretty much every teen movie out there, isn't it? And, and I mean, hopefully you're not watching them, but if you're watching some of those movies out there, what you're realizing is all these coming-of-age movies, it's all about these kids experimenting, and it's the idea. Here's what they're preaching. You know what? Enjoy it while you're young. You know, you only get one body, <laughs> you know, and you're only young once. Youth is wasted on the young, as they say, right? And so that's what's preached in our society. It's a lie. The sins of your youth remain the pains and regrets and the sins of your old age. You ask any old person in here, if you're a young person, go up to some of these old people and ask them what they regret. Ask them what some of their struggles are now. And I'm going to tell you that many of them will say back to their high school, their teen and 20 something years. And they look at that and it stays with them the rest of their life. And this idea that you can sin when you're 16 and it won't matter when you're 65 is a lie from Satan. And so we need to reject this type of thinking. And so what's Paul's response? What's his rebuttal to that? They said, this is how God made me. I only get one body. And so Paul said, verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. The Lord and the Lord for the body. Why did God give you a body? To serve the Lord. The purpose of your body is to glorify God and to serve God. That's the reason God gave you a body. Your body was not designed so you can indulge in your own selfish pleasure and worship self. Your body was designed and is designed to glorify God. Your mind, your emotions, your imaginations, your mouth, your ears, your hands, your body is to be used for the Lord. It's a gift from God. And the body is very important. Some people would say maybe, well, the body's not that important. You're going to die someday. Does God really care? He does care. He cares about your body now and your body in the next life. In fact, look at verse 14. He says that. How important does God view the body? Well, He's going to give you a new body, a resurrected body, actually. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. By his power, he will give you a resurrected body. He'll resurrect your DNA so that you are who you are, but in perfection. Which hopefully that means some of us will have more hair. Although this might be perfection. No, 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 no. Verse 15, 
Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Again, Paul reminded them that as a Christian, you are set apart under the Lord, so your sin matters. And Paul is demonstrating here how terrible sexual immorality is when a Christian uses his body in a sinful way. He's taking Christ into that sin with him as well. Verse 16 Do you not know? I mean, this is a truth you guys already know. Let me remind you, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For it is written, the two become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Because we are in Christ and Christ is within us, we are joined together as one in the Holy Spirit. And so when you use your body to sin against the Lord, you are taking Jesus who died for your sin back into that sin. And so here the question is not, what is my immediate desire? What do I want to do? But what are the consequences? What are the eternal consequences? What are the temporal consequences? Am I serving God with my body? Am I considering the consequences? I had a teacher growing up that uh, said this once, and it stuck with me. And he said, when you're about to sin, imagine your mom standing right behind you. And and there were many times when I was about to sin, and I imagined my mom behind me, and thought, yeah, that would be, that's kind of a thing I don't want to do right now. But you know, In our relationship with God, God is closer than just behind us. The Holy Spirit is within us. And so when you you look at an image to lust, when you go and indulge in your sin, God is, is watching, yes. But even more than that, you are bringing God into that sin. And it's like spitting on Christ and his work. So what should we do? What should we do as we consider these things? Verse 18, flee, run from sexual immorality. What's the big deal? Ben, you're kind of harping on this sin a lot. Maybe you should harp on stealing as much as you do this. Well, look at verse 18. Why is this such a big deal? Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. There's something about this that actually has a level of seriousness that that is more significant than other sins. You know, some people say, well, isn't every sin you know, just as bad as the other? Well, every sin sends you to hell, right? I mean, the people who are really good but sin go to hell. The people who are really bad but sin go to hell without the grace of Christ, without salvation in Christ. But there are degrees of judgment in hell. Like Hitler will have a more severe judgment than other people. There are, there are consequences for sin on earth. But there's something insidious, there's something that's enslaving, there's something that's more even damaging about sexual sin. And the point here is there is something biological, there's something chemical, there's something that happens spiritually, physically, relationally with this type of sin that doesn't happen with other sins, and it's serious, and that's why you got to flee from it. And the world preaches the exact opposite, right? The world preaches. I mean, if you watch the movies, if you watch, if you're on social media, if you listen in the classroom, if you're just listening to the culture, the world preaches, well, you, you need that first kiss. Sweet 16. Have you been kissed? That's not in the Bible, by the way. Or, or you need a boyfriend, a girlfriend to, 
help you feel valued. Your body will determine your worth. No one really says that, but that's what it's kind of communicated, right? You can just do what you want. Watch what you want. One look won't hurt you. But no, brother and sister in Christ, we must flee from sexual immorality. And then glorify God in your body. Look at verse 19. Do you not know? Let me remind you of this truth. We've taught this before, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your mind, your body is the place where God has chosen to have the Holy Spirit permanently, eternally dwell. And what takes place in a temple? Worship. Right? You, you ever had these kids that run around in places like this and, you know, they're running and someone says, stop running. You're running in God's house, you know. We don't really believe this is God's house. <laughs> like God's house is in here. But the idea that person is saying is this, this is a place we worship, right? And can you imagine if someone came in here with graffiti and they graffitied and profanity everywhere and knocked everything? We would be all pretty upset, right? But listen to this. Our temples, our bodies are a temple, I should say, of the Holy Spirit. And we worship God with our bodies, with our minds, with our mouths, with our bodies. And therefore, it matters what we put into our mind. It matters what we listen to. It matters what we watch. But even beyond that, we are to consider every thought and every word and every action as worship to God. We don't have to go to a temple to worship. All we have to do is walk around. And the truth is you are worshiping no matter what you think you're doing. You're either worshiping God with your body or you're worshiping yourself. And so notice in verse 19, he says, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. What's that price? It was the suffering and death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Christ gave up his body to purchase our redemption and to restore our lives so we can bring glory to God in our bodies. You are bought with a price, so what are we to do? Glorify God in your body. As we conclude, I want us just to think about these last two commands. Maybe you're in here and you're without Christ. Maybe you're in here and you felt the conviction, maybe even guilt for some things you've done, and you're without Christ. Let me tell you, that's called the Holy Spirit. He is in this world to convict us of sin, things that we do wrong, of righteousness, that God is holy, and of judgment, that there's a punishment for it. And Jesus came to save you from that sin. And so if you felt that guilt, God wants to save you. He wants to cleanse you. He wants to remove that guilt with the blood of Jesus Christ, with the work of the Holy Spirit to save you. And all you have to do is call upon him. Maybe you're a Christian and you have felt that guilt as well and you know you're not living a set-apart life. Well, this is why Christ promises us that if we confess our sins, if we tattle on ourselves to God, if we say, okay, Lord, you know that this is what I've done, this is his promise to us. Listen, listen to this promise. He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that amazing? Praise God. And so the sins of your youth, 
and the sins of last week, Christ cleanses them. Isn't that amazing to think about? And so confess that to the Lord. Enjoy the fellowship that God gives to you in Christ. I think all of us as Christians, we this morning should once again remember that we are not our own. We are set apart under the Lord, and therefore we should consecrate our bodies, our lives to God. God has set us apart unto himself, and so we need to acknowledge that and then, and then set ourselves apart unto God. Remember that everything we do in our life is an act of worship. And so, and say, Lord, I do not own my body. I do not own my mind. I do not own my eyes. You own them. You bought them with with the price of Christ's death on the cross. And therefore, I want to give you my eyes, my body, and my life. And I want to serve you. So, Lord, give me the grace. Give me grace to flee. (laughs) Give me grace to run. Give me wisdom to know when I should run. And enable me to glorify you in my body. Let's pray. Would you bow your head with me and pray in your heart? I think all of us can first pray for our nation in this. We can pray for those maybe even in this room who don't know the Lord and pray that God would help them and deliver them from the bondage of this type of sin. We could pray for ourselves that God would give us grace and courage to do the right thing, to flee from our sin, and God would give us the wisdom to know how we, we can glorify God in our body. We can all consecrate our bodies to the Lord. Would you pray with me?